This is Tom Vargelettis with the Full-Time Real Estate Photographer Podcast. This episode is about the gear you bring to a photo shoot. So what should I bring? I'm going to talk about the absolute bare minimum that I think you should go with, and then we'll talk about some other situations you might find yourself in when it comes to equipment to have and need. We're going to break it into three parts. What are you going to bring to your just your standard run-of-the-mill photo shoot? And what are you going to bring to a video shoot for those real estate videos? If you ever wanted to do virtual tours, 3D scan, what can you use there? So let's start with the photo shoot. If you're just going to take some stills, what is the bare minimum of equipment that you will need to get the job done? First off, camera, and I talk about this all the time. I am still using the Panasonic Lumix GH4 for pretty much all of my shoots. When I send out a photographer, I'm also sending them out with a GH4. And I'm doing this for a few reasons. I've talked about in earlier episodes, but like briefly, when it comes to real estate, because we're on a tripod, we're taking as many exposures as we need. We don't have to worry so much about high ISO performance. We don't have to worry so much about how many raw files can you take in a second. You're in a very kind of low stress, usually, environment where you can set things up, you can make it just right, you can take several exposures. Image quality is not going to be an issue. The image quality is determined by you, the photographer, how you're going to edit and take the shots. Resolution, I'm down-resing my files to 2,000 pixels on the long edge. And what that's going to do is still going to give you really high resolution for pretty much every single use case for printing on smaller media like your standard real estate brochures. Even on somewhat larger prints, I use those down-resed files for printing on a 19 by 18-inch print, something like that. And that's going to give you nice, sharp image quality. It's slightly less resolution when you're counting the pixels than a uh, 4K TV, but not like so much so that it's going to look grainy. So you don't even need really, and I'm talking about need here. Sometimes we like to have all those extra pixels so we can crop in. And sometimes the photo can look a little bit sharper. Those higher end, bigger megapixel cameras also give you a little bit better dynamic range so they can look a little bit better right out of the camera without having to really blend images. But when you are on your standard run-of-the-mill real estate shoot, that's really all you need. I mean, you could get away with something a little bit uh, lower end even than that. But I like to use the GH4 because I can buy one used with batteries, (laughs) um, lenses, for like under a thousand dollars and I can replace these things as if they wear out, if they get dropped, kicked around, no big deal. Doesn't matter. I haven't invested my life savings in a camera and lens. So if they shit the bed, I just go and get another one. I don't even have to think about it. And when you're getting low cost, good condition equipment used at like really good prices it's not that big a deal to buy two or three or more of them because we're going to talk about having backups later on Uh, so that's camera i like i i also have as a backup in one of my kits the sony a6000 a6000 does just a fine job and i've um, got no complaints with that one uh it my style of shooting i like to shoot with a remote trigger 
the A6000 does not have a um, remote input, like for a shutter release cable to plug into that and connect to my uh, wireless trigger. So usually, you know, you just set it up on a timer, or uh, if you wanted to, you could connect the app. I find the Sony app is a bit more reliable than the GH4, the Panasonic app. So those are two cameras I recommend um, at an entry level, at an intermediate level. I routinely shoot houses upwards of five, six, seven million dollars with the GH4, no complaints, and uh, you can get by. You can get by. I mean, don't convince yourself that you have to buy the biggest, most expensive camera because that's the only way you can get good image quality. If you're if you're gonna buy something nice because you want it and you think it's cool, that's fine. Just understand why you're doing that and understand that you're spending a whole bunch of money that you don't necessarily need to. And sometimes as photographers, you know, we like to do it. If you've been building up a pretty big business, you might have the uh, income to support something like brand new, much newer. Um, and you know, maybe you'll feel better about it. But for me, it's all about utility. GH4 does a great job. Lenses. So I'm using on the GH4, I'm using it's the uh, Leica 8 to 18 millimeter lens. And uh, for the Sony, it's an equivalent focal length. The Sony has a nice wide angle. I like this Leica because it's a zoom. It's full frame equivalent of what, 16 to 36 mil, something like that. Uh, so it's it's pretty good, even wide at the, at the zoomed in range. But it's uh, weatherproof, so I will routinely take that out and do photo shoots while it's raining or snowing on me. And uh, no problems whatsoever. If I really want to get crazy in the rain to protect the camera, I'll just put one of those uh, plastic booty things that you use for your shoes, I'll just stretch that over the top of the camera and I'm done. A nice wide angle lens is key. I do have some tighter, longer focal length lenses. Very rarely do I ever need to use them. I think I've had to go in a little bit tighter than that maybe once. It's very rare that I have to go beyond the uh, 18 or the 35, 36 millimeter full frame equivalent. But it's nice to have that range so you don't have to constantly be swapping lenses. I, I know that there's a lot of photographers that like to just use the prime lenses. And if they want to change focal lengths, just swap out the lenses. That's a nice capability. But as far as just getting the job done, this is fine. Now, if you want to go full frame with all tilt shifts, yeah, you're going to have to get multiple tilt shifts. Then you're going to have to get extenders. The, the Leica 8 to 18 is like a thousand dollar lens. It's worth more than the camera. A good solid zoom lens does the job for me. And you know, if you really want to start getting fancy and spending many more thousands of dollars on lenses, please go ahead. But just remember why you're making that decision. Is it because you just want to have the most practical, useful setup ever, or just because you want to have like these really awesome, nice things? Just because, like I said, with this. Um, let's call it prosumer grade equipment. Uh, I've been doing just fine in my business. And by the way, this is for like your run of the mill real estate photography. If you're going to go do some super high end architectural shoot, you're going to want the absolute best that you can buy. Not necessarily because of uh, image quality, which definitely the more money you spend, like your bigger, fancier, more expensive cameras and lenses, you're going to get 
sharper images. You're going to get more resolution. You're also going to look better. And, and appearance is very important when it comes to interacting with clients. If you are set up for what I'm going through here, your standard real estate shoot, and then you show up at a high-end architectural photography shoot, your photos are going to go in a magazine, and maybe there's a couple people there watching you and interacting with you, and they see that you get this beat-up old used gear. They're not going to be happy. Uh, so appearance is also really important. How do you want to look to other people, to your clients while you're using this stuff? Um, if you keep this gear I'm going through in good repair, it looks fine. Most people don't notice. You also need to be aware of who your customers are and what you're going to be delivering to them. And the experience that they have when interacting with you is a factor that you need to consider. Real estate shoot, this stuff is fine. It's getting, it's like I said, it's gotten me by for shooting like trailer park homes all the way to, um, you know, seven, nine, 10,000 square foot homes. Okay, what are you putting in the camera? You're getting some memory cards. Personally, I like to use the Samsung, the micro SD cards, the ones where you buy it. It's the micro SD card and then the, there's the adapter for the, the bigger um, SD card. So you can put it into your camera. I also like the micro SD card because you can take that out and you could put it in a drone if you have a drone. Or if you did not buy a fancy SD card holder, and say your little canvas bag got moisture inside of it or was crushed somehow, stepped on, kicked around, whatever. I just, I don't know why I have this feeling, but I feel like because the actual memory card is inside of a plastic housing already that it gets a little bit extra protection. <laughs> I might be delusional, but uh, it makes me feel a little more comfortable, especially when if I'm having a drone pilot come by, I can just give him the micro SD card to pop in and then give back. I recommend those SD cards. They, I also get the faster ones. I'm usually not buying an SD card that's smaller than 32 gigs because I will also do video shoots and I like to have memory cards that can handle uh, higher bitrate recording at 4K. Plus, I want to know that if I forget to format a card before a shoot, I'm probably not going to fill it up and have to break a shoot onto two different cards because then they would just get messy with organization. Those memory cards tend to be expensive. Bear in mind as I'm going through these things, at least in the U.S., we have these special Black Friday sales or holiday specials. Something that I do is I have a list of gear that I need and I have a list of things that I might want to get, maybe. And every now and then I'll look at like the Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, eBay, and I'll check online. And I buy stuff when, when, when sales happen all the time. There was a Black Friday sale one year where memory cards were like half off. So I bought a bunch of 128 gig cards for the price that I would have paid for like a 64 gig card. So you know, that's another thing is, is even if the gear tends to be more expensive and when it comes to memory, I'm usually buying them new because I don't want to potentially get a memory card that's like on the verge of being corrupted or just, you know, close to the end of its life. I, I like to get memory new because even when you have a really reliable memory card, there's no guarantee that they will never fail you. The budget or used memory cards or don't seem like they're worth it to me, especially because they're pretty low cost compared to other things. So just remember, if you're like, whoa, those 64, 128 gig cards, those are a little pricey. 
I'm going to get the budget cheapo cards. You can get the cheap cards. I recommend you get a whole bunch of them and then like scatter them throughout your entire um, office through your kit. Put a couple in your glove box. It's good to just have them handy just in case. But my daily drivers are those um, are the Samsung micro SD cards. As far as tripods go, I am using the Manfrotto X-Pro3 aluminum tripod. It's, I think the product name is the MT055 X-Pro3. Those are uh, pretty good workhorses. You can spend a little bit more money and get the carbon fiber, which is a bit lighter. I find that the aluminum is doing a great job. I have multiple of those tripods out in circulation right now. They are being used to death. And they're taking it, taking it like a champ. Every now and then, every couple of years, you get to tighten up the tripod legs. But, you know, we're doing shoots in, in weird inclement weather conditions. We're throwing them in a tripod bag. I'll talk about bags in a minute. They're getting bounced around, tossed in and out of trunks. And so far, nothing's broken. Nothing's been flying off of them. They've been super reliable for me. So maybe I'll try some others in the future. But right now, all we're using are those. I've just been happening to find really good deals on the same type of tripod over and over again. In a previous episode, you heard Madison. He was a recent hire of mine. Madison's been uh, 40 hours or more every single week doing photo shoots, by the way. And he's been using one of these tripods that I got for his kit. And uh, I bought it off of some guy. We met in a parking lot. He was just charging like 100 bucks. 100 US dollars for this tripod, which is a steal. And I'm thinking, man, this thing's probably beat up because he used like the original product photos you can get online for the listing. Show up, he pulls it out, still brand new in the box, still in the original packaging. And he said, Yeah, I just opened it. My wife bought it a while back and, you know, we never really used it. So just getting rid of it. I've been lucky with finding this particular kind of tripod for some reason. I guess it's really popular. Uh, and getting them in great condition too. Next is the, on top of the tripod, you're going to mount a geared tripod head. A lot of photographers already have or like to use a ball head. The problem with a ball head is that you can get the job done, but it becomes a little bit more tedious when it comes to straightening out your verticals. The one thing that I really feel like is important to get right in camera is composition because there, there's no way really to change it. You want to have your vertical lines dialed in, which means you want to really level out the camera unless purposefully you're tilting it because you're going to um, realign the verticals later on to do like a fake tilt shift look. Geared tripod head is the way to go. Now, when you're looking at geared tripod heads online, you're going to realize that those things sometimes cost more than the tripod, especially the uh, X-Pro3. There's a lot of photographers that just rave about like the Arca Swiss ones, the uh, Manfrotto 410, and those are really good tripod heads. But again, for my business, I want to profit as much and as soon as possible. And if I'm spending all this money on gear, it means I'm putting less money in my pocket. And I don't like that. <laughs> I want to get the job done and get it done well and still have a nice big fat margin. Over time, if you want to really upgrade and get higher quality gear, that's fine. 
like I said, if you've got an established business going, you've been using the budget stuff, and you're like, it's time for me to get something better, just just for my own gratification, or just so you know I can have it, um, or just to have a little bit better user experience, uh, that's totally fine. But that's going to depend on you and your business. If you're just starting out, or if you are like me and you just want to get the job done, you don't want to fuss about you know, which $5,000 tripod head do you really want to use? I'm using the Manfrotto X-Pro. It's like their cheapest geared head, I think. Um, it's a couple hundred dollars maybe. And it, like I said, does the job. It can get a little sticky. Sometimes the gears can get dirty because they're like exposed. And then when you turn the knob to make adjustments, it might give you this grinding sensation. A little bit harder to turn than some of the others, but... Compared to a ball head, you get much more control. And, you know, compared to the higher priced alternatives, it's not like the best ever. But if you take good care of your equipment and you don't mind not having the best thing ever, you can still perfectly line up your verticals. With this particular one, because the movement is um, not quite as precisely as controlled as like the, your higher end gear heads. What's going to happen is you get into this situation where uh, when I was in the army, we'd call that chasing the bubble. Uh, when I was in the army, I was in a, uh, I was, I was a mortarman in the mortar section. And the, the site that we used on the, um, on the mortar guns had a spirit level, much like you find a spirit level on the, uh, on the geared tripod head. In the mortar section, what you do when you get firing coordinates, you have to make adjustments and level it. And if you're leveling it back and forth and back and forth, we call that chasing the bubble. And I found that you do that a lot on this geared head as well. So what you have to do is with practice, you can intuitively make adjustments to prevent the bubble chasing from happening. So when I say that, I mean, you make an adjustment, maybe you're slightly off center and then you go over, right? You make a small adjustment and then a much larger change is made than you anticipated. You go to the other side of the level, you make an adjustment back again, and then you find that you've chased the bubble to the other side of the spirit level. You know, like I said, with practice, you get a good feel for it where you can see the bubble. The bubble gives you an indication of which way you want to make your adjustments. You turn those knobs just so, and then it gets centered. But if you slightly make adjustments and you watch that bubble, what's going to happen is you're going to approach center. And then when you let go of the knob, the bubble is going to keep going. Um, I imagine a lot of photographers do not like to use the X-Pro because of that. And it's probably going to leave you with a feeling like, oh, it's this cheap piece of junk and, you know, it won't properly level. But really, there's a way to compensate for it if you want to uh, go that route. So how much more money is it worth to get a geared head that will be a little bit easier to level out um, visually versus just knowing that, you know, I'm going to make an adjustment on my own terms and bring that bubble in closer? Because I know with military equipment that was old and beat up and used to death, that is what we would have to do. You would have to kind of intuit how, what the adjustment would be from the initial indication you got on the spirit level and then you're going to find magically you can level it pretty much perfectly every single time. So yeah, it's just a practice thing. And when it comes to spending money in gear, you know, the the more expensive you go, the easier your workflow will be. So 
If you wanted to spend double the money for a geared head where you didn't have to even think about that, fine. If that makes sense for your business, go ahead. But for me, the Manfrotto X Pro geared head does just a fine job. How are we triggering our cameras? Well, I like to use the Yongnuo RF603 series. Why? Because they are dirt cheap. They are um, interchangeably used as a trigger or a receiver. So it doesn't matter which unit you plug into the camera and which one you put in your pocket. The battery life is pretty good. And um, so far, like I still have the first pair that I bought. Uh, they... I drop them. Sometimes I'm using them out and it's kind of like a little misty or rainy so they can get some moisture on them. Um, they, and they're still going strong. Uh, the biggest issue I've had with the uh, Young Nuo triggers is that the little battery door can sometimes stop snapping into place because that little, it has a little flange that clicks in. You slide the battery door on and it clicks in place like a battery door on a remote or something like that on a TV remote. And sometimes that little flange breaks. So uh, what I usually do is I just wrap a rubber band around the middle of it. The friction of the rubber band holds it in place just fine. And, uh, you know, so I don't have to worry about tape and getting adhesive stickiness all over the thing. Yep, they still, they just work. They just work. Distance is really good on them. You can shoot through walls. Uh, if you have other photographers or an assistant on your team, and this is a problem that the first time it happened, it was kind of tripping me out. Like sometimes I'd send if I'm if I'm going out to assist one of my photographers, sometimes I'd send them outside. Like, all right, you do the exteriors, I'm gonna do the interiors, and when you're done outside, get in here and start on the on the third floor or whatever. You know, because if it's a larger house, it's easier when you have two people. You can get it done, and you know less than half the time it would normally take. So I'd be taking photos and and my camera was responding like in this very strange way. And then randomly the camera was taking photos of its own accord. I'd set everything up. I'd get the flash ready and the flash would pop off. I'm like, what is going on? And because out of the box, all those triggers are are set to the same frequency. But if you have multiple people, just remember you can change the um, channel of the triggers as a way to do it inside the battery compartment. Uh, so if you ever plan on doing that, so now we color code our gear and each color coded gear has its own channel. So just bear that in mind. Uh, with the trigger, I also use a shutter release cable. I, uh, you cannot just plug in a direct like 2.5 millimeter cable into the camera and into the, um, the trigger, the trigger has a little, the trigger does have a little two and a half millimeter. I think it's two and a half millimeter, um, like audio cable style plug on the side of it. And then the same thing on the remote port on the camera. What happens is that if you just plug the male to male um, cable in, you won't be able to trigger the camera. You have to buy a shutter release cable, which has a uh, resistor in there somewhere the gh4 will not recognize that you've plugged in a remote and that you're trying to trigger it unless it has a little bit of resistance between one of the one of the wires so i mean if you're handy with electronics you could actually make one but for like five six dollars you can get a, a, a just fine shutter release camp cable and that works and it works great
when you are using your camera with a shutter release cable, just remember, this is a little pro tip, always unplug the cable from the camera and from the trigger, always when it's not in use. I mean, if it's set up on the camera, that's, that's, that's one thing. But if you're like transporting the camera from inside to outside, or you're moving in between your car and your house, always, always, I don't know how you're stow stowing away your gear. What we do is we break everything down right there on the spot, pack it away in the case, close the case, and then you move locations. Even if you are taking a photo shoot of the house right up the street or across the street, and I do this all the time, I will yell at people if they're not doing that. You always, in a very safe, controlled environment, break everything down, take the camera off the tripod, take the things off the camera, pack the things away, and then you walk across the street. You're not going to walk with like a setup camera because here's what happens. If you're working hard, you're not paying super close attention to all the smallest details, you make a mistake, maybe you brush up against the doorway or something, and you snap the shutter release cable because it's sticking off the side in the camera, you have now just disabled your wireless triggering system because there's no way on location to drill that little thing and pull it out. Um, so just, you know. Pro tip, if you're plugging things into your camera and you got wires hanging around, always break that down because you do not want to be on location and realize suddenly you have to change your entire um, your entire shooting style because you were careless. Now, if that does happen, you do have a 3 and 10 second timer on the camera, so you could manually trigger it, run over to where you needed to place your flash or whatever, or, um, you know walk out, set your flash, walk back to the camera, trigger it, walk back out, move the flash, walk back to the camera, trigger it. <laughs> you won't have to do that for every single shot, but uh, you know it's good to have those kinds of backup plans. But let's just not find ourselves in that situation anyways, right? Let's uh, properly break everything down in between shoots and, and transportation. Okay, flash. What is the flash you're gonna use? Now this is where I like to spend a little bit more money. Because a cheap little flash, it's nice, but you run into this problem with, let's call it bandwidth. When you're working with your photography gear, you want it to be able to perform at the highest capacity that you will need it to. And that's not because your average situation that you find yourself in is going to be the most demanding. That's because your average situation is going to be average. Now, if you want to use flash, you want to be equipped to use flash for enormous rooms. Every now and then you'll get one. But what happens is because you have so much power behind you, the smaller rooms and areas are going to be much easier on the flash. And I say this because it's good to have a lot of latitude to move in terms of flash power. You want to have a lot of power behind you when you don't need it because at the lower um, flash power settings, you're going to be able to take many more low power flashes. It's, it's much easier on the battery and the recycle time is very fast as well. Under a quarter power on a, on a strong flash, it's gonna be, the recycle time is gonna be minimal and you can take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flash frames. So when I started messing around with flash, I was using like these cheap Amazon basics garbage. They were only useful in the smallest of rooms when, you know, you didn't have to compete with direct sunlight and 
the battery was was pretty the battery was it, it just didn't really last that long even when i bought the 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 cheap 30 dollar flashes take batteries like double a style batteries so i'd buy the 2800 milliamp rechargeables which is like the most energy dense ones that i could find and still you drain through those quickly um i'm using mostly the ad 200 but i've recently been playing around with the 8400 so those two flashes the ad 200 is going to be overpowered for all of your average sized rooms once you start getting into bigger rooms and i mean bigger like your 20 foot long your 40 50 foot long rooms that are maybe like here you get a kitchen there you have a dining room and then on the far side you have a great room that's going to be starting to push the limits maybe not starting that will be pushing the limits of the 8200 uh those really enormous great rooms where it's like cathedral ceilings you've got a 30 by 50 foot you know these aren't super common these are on the bigger more expensive homes but the 8200 becomes less and less useful in those situations and you find that you can you can compensate for that by directly flashing items in the room where you know you take one good exposure ambient exposure uh for the room and then with your flash you'll take maybe i don't know three four like one full power window pull and one you know 64th power something to put some highlights on the furniture uh there's there's ways to compensate for that but the 8200 is a workhorse it does great and that's like your 300 dollar flash a single battery lasts well past a full day of shooting and you know it's just a great piece of equipment it's pretty lightweight it's pretty portable the 8400 i strongly recommend as a second buy so if you wanted to uh, you could get a second 8200 and an adb2 which is a like a, a special bracket thing that you can connect two 8200s together and that's pretty cool it, it gives you much stronger light output more than slightly more than double when you're using the adb2 but if you wanted to have two separate independent lights for two photographers or to put lights in two separate locations, 18200 and 18400 would do the trick. So I have the 8200 and the 8400 Pro, uh, and I love it. It's great. Don't need any light modifiers. Just bounce the flash like normal. But because you've got one stop more power, you can do those big rooms. When I am triggering the flash on the kit where I'm sending people out with just the 8200, um, they're just using the X1N trigger. It's like the, it's like the the cheaper one. I, I think it's the cheaper one. It's the uh, smaller one, smaller LCD screen, and you you can have full control of the flash. You can you can control multiple groups if you needed to, and you know set flash power independently. And uh, it works fine. Works just as good or better than the Yongnuo triggers. Usually, what I'm doing with the GH4 is I have my my uh, X1N or X1 whatever the X1 trigger. I, I have that on the hot shoe in the camera, and then I have the Yongnuo receiver on top of the hot shoe of that, and then I have the cable going from the Yongnuo, which is on top of the X1. You know, wrap it around a couple times. It's kind of long, and then plug it into the remote.
that's how I'm doing that. On the uh, kit with that just has the AD400, we're using the X-Pro trigger. And then for that, I have a cold shoe, like a cheap plastic cold shoe mount thing strapped onto a tripod leg. And the young Neo trigger is on the tripod leg and the cable's going from the trigger to the camera. So the, uh, the X1N works fine. The X-Pro is definitely a nicer user experience. It's much easier and faster to switch between channels, set flash power. I really like that one. It's also easier to see, which is a big plus. But both of them will get the job done. We're all just using manual flash settings, manual camera settings. So you don't have to fuss about the TTL stuff. I mean, if you wanted to learn about it, fine. But probably could just get by not even turning those features on. Um, yeah, really good experience so far with the 8200 and the 8400. So uh, the X1N, the X1 trigger and the X-Pro are both great handy flash triggers. The X-Pro is definitely a nicer user experience. But, you know, as far as like low to mid-level pro flash gear, those do the trick. I mean, you're not going to get a ton better performance unless you're spending literally thousands more on this gear. So the, the Godox products are, you know, we're using them to death. We're, we are beating these things up and um, in and out of the case, in and out of the cars, in between houses, out shooting all day long. Just works fine. For the flashes, I like to use a flash stand. Now, actually, let me make a quick aside note here. We are also using, as far as mounting gear goes, the Manfrotto quick release plate. The um, you know square rectangular plate that latches in on one end. So you, you tip the front end in behind a, a flange or, or whatever you might call it. And then you seat the plate fully down. And then there's like a, a latch on the back of it that locks. And those quick release plates are on everything. I put a quick release plate on the camera and on the flash and on all of the gear that I have that I might need to put on a tripod or a light stand. And then on the tripod, obviously the, um, the geared tripod head already has that quick release plate receiver i guess we'd call it um built in that's a part of it and then you can buy these kits with the manfrotto like the plate and then and then the the mounting bracket and you can bolt that onto a light stand or onto a different kind of tripod i even have one on my uh, gorilla pod that i don't use anymore because it's just all worn out and wobbly they're pretty cheap and it's really nice to have consistent mounting solution for everything. So everything just snaps in place and then it can easily and quickly be removed. We like to do this for the flashes because sometimes you might just want to handhold the flash, especially that 8400, which is a bit heavier, but it has a pretty convenient carrying handle. We just put like a, a long strap on it so you can shoulder sling it and have it kind of dangling at your side. And then you just pick it up, point it in the air, take your photo, and then set it back down to the side. That seems to do the trick for most cases, but if we need to put it on a light stand, we know that it doesn't matter what light stand we have with us, as long as it can support the weight, you can mount it. The flash stands that, that we're using right now, so this is one of those things where you're thinking, nah, it's just a light stand, who cares? 
So I've got a lot of those cheap garbage ones you can get. Like there's a the twenty dollar kneewear ones that that you know they they hold up, but they're flimsy. I always just thought, well, it's a light stand. It doesn't really matter if it's shaking around or little a little unstable because it's okay if there's some movement. Then we started buying the nice Manfrotto light stands, the uh, flat pack ones. The they're they're ranging in like the hundred dollars plus, and uh, I have to say those are there's no substitute for a really good light stand. I cannot believe it. They they really converted me. I I used to just say let's get the cheap stuff, but now I'm like. I don't know, because if you're putting a $300 light, a $600 light up in the air, I mean, you would you would want to know that it's not just going to fall over. <laughs> now, if you have an assistant with you that's holding the light stand and holding it up, okay. But um, if you ever find yourself needing to extend a light stand and walk away from it, you do want it to be kind of stable. I've had some scary situations where I've like sprint <laughs> dropped what was in my hand sprinted over to catch the stand because like it got, somehow started getting wobbly and looked like it was going to fall the cheap stands can get the job done but you want to keep them close at hand those Manfrotto ones those those are rock solid the 8400 is I don't know it's it's heavier than the 8200 by a lot and I can put it on a 12 foot stand fully extend it, and I'm not worried about it at all. Now, they cost a little bit more money, but in my mind, that is worth it. I would rather have a little bit more expensive light stand than have to buy another flash because it tipped over and smashed on the ground. Uh, Connecting the light to the flash on the stand, we have the Manfrotto makes these flash stand brackets. They have a ratcheting handle. They can tilt from full 90 degrees and flip over to the opposite 90 degrees. They are rock solid, and you can conveniently just bolt a Manfrotto quick-release plate onto them. I love those brackets. They are very heavy-duty and uh, a little expensive. In some cases, more expensive than the light stand that they are bolted to. But uh, it's really convenient to have a consistent mounting solution, like I said before. So we use them on all of our light stands. For the flash, we're not really modifying the light. In some cases, we might want to. Now, if we're shooting a log cabin, if we're shooting an enormous room and we have to directly flash some items just to get that nice look, for the 8200, you can buy just a really simple, cheap uh, softbox style light modifier that just kind of velcros onto the head of the flash. And uh, they're cheap, easy, simple to use. You can use a shoot-through umbrella. I find that I, I when I have the 8200, I'm just taking out the, the little Velcro on one. It's just a, faster to use, more convenient. It's easier to use handheld, obviously. Uh, But, you know, a really simple shoot-through umbrella, that does the trick as well. For the bigger flash and for many other situations, we also have those, um, you know, those five-in-one reflector setups. Uh, Neewer has some for like 20 bucks on Amazon where it has a zippered pouch. One side is black, one side is silver. You can invert the pouch. One side is white. One side is gold, and then the 
the center insert with the wire frame. It's it's like a, a diffusion panel that you could shoot through if you wanted to. And it packs up in a convenient little round case. You just kind of roll it up like a pop-up tent kind of an idea, right? Cheap, not super durable. I mean, you're not going to be really poking them or rubbing things. Well, you shouldn't be anyway. Uh, so they seem to last just fine. And uh, yeah, just set the flash on a light stand, hold the the white side of the reflector up and, and bounce into it. Does just fine. Very rarely do I have to use that. Usually the, the first thing I'll do is I'll try and find something white or neutral colored in the room if it's not the ceiling and just try and bounce off of that, see what happens. Uh, sometimes it works fine. Sometimes you get to bust out the reflector. Um, either way, as far as light modifiers go, you don't need much more than that. And finally, where are you putting your gear? I strongly recommend a hard case, a hard shelled case for everything. If you like or you just prefer to have, you know, canvas padded bags, that's fine if that's just a personal choice for you. But as far as utility goes, this is where I don't mind spending a little bit more money and getting the Pelican cases with the Trek Pack divider kit and the uh, lid organizer because you can maximize your storage space. It is weatherproof to a certain degree. You don't have to worry if it's like raining or snowing on you. You can carry that, that case with your gear inside, out. It can get rained on and your stuff is fine. You can... <laughs> improperly pack it into your car and then when you open your trunk or however you're taking it out of your car it could slip and roll down to the ground into a puddle your gear is still fine obviously that's not like a daily occurrence it's exceptionally rare that that would ever happen obviously we're not misusing our gear we take great care of it but in that once in a lifetime situation where something crazy does happen and all your shit just falls onto the ground from a height of, you know, two, three, four feet, whatever, or rolls down some stairs, you know it's that nothing is broken. Because that has happened to me once. It's happened once. It's never happened again. But my God, was I glad all that was in a Pelican case. The most common is, uh, is rain. You know, I'll just carry the gear into the house and it'll be raining on me. And I don't care because everything is safe. If you're going to use a bag, a canvas bag, make sure it is weatherproof. If it's not, there's ways of doing that. You can get a, give it a spray or the way old-fashioned way, like how we used to do with our canvas uh, tarps and tents and things. Is you can, there's this like wax that you can rub into the fabric. But that's like, that's old school. The tripods and light stands, definitely want to put that in a bag. Like I said, mostly for transportation and weather protection. Not so much that like you have to have it in order to keep your gear safe. Um, gently laying it down in the rear seat of your car or the passenger seat of your car, it's fine. It's going to take a beating, but when you are transporting the tripod from your vehicle to the house and... You know, you get some water on it. You could potentially have like the metal parts get rusty or maybe gunky over time. If you find that um, like here in New England in the spring season, there's a lot of pollen in the air. If you leave something out long enough, I mean, if you leave the window of your house open for too long during that season, the pollen will create a yellow layer of dust 
on the windowsill and maybe some things immediately around it. Having your gear kind of sealed up when you're not using it, it's just going to keep it a little bit cleaner. And for me, cleanliness is important, but it's probably going to keep, you know, still be useful for a long time, even if it gets dirty. It's also handy to, if you're carrying multiple, so usually we'll go in with a tripod, a light stand, and a monopod. It's easy to just have them all in one case, and then you can take them all from place to place really conveniently. Your arms aren't being tied up. You don't have to run back and forth to your car. For us, it's a convenience thing. I have budget, like cheap canvas crappy bags for the tripods and light stands and then I also have like the 50 60 dollar fancy pants padded manfrotto light stand tripod bags and so far I'm you know the the expensive bags are not really blowing me away like the like an expensive uh, light stand is so you know it's fine if you want to cheap out on that just make sure your handles aren't going to rip off and your 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 and your <laughs> and your tripod is just going to roll down a cliffside or something crazy um it needs to be sturdy enough to do the job of course but uh, yeah i wouldn't go too crazy about those and then finally for the real estate photo shoot you need backups and you want a backup of everything you can get i'm talking about batteries spare triggers especially shutter release cables if your cable is poking out of the case if it's a hard shell case and you're not paying attention you slam the lid shut and then you when you go to open it up you realize your cable has been <laughs> destroyed you want to have a backup um, extra memory cards is key something that we do for every single kit is you get a memory card, a hard shell case, even though it's a hard shell case going in a hard shell case, just that extra layer of protection because the memory, that data is the product, right? Like that's one of the most important things that you have there. doesn't matter how well a photo you can take if you can't actually edit and deliver to the client. Like those SD cards need to be locked up tight and kept safe. So uh, they're in a hard shell waterproof case and, you know, usually they'll have like six or seven of them because we like to do per photographer one SD card per photo shoot. And if there's a drone shoot happening, like there'll be the drone photos on the SD card and there'll be the interiors on the on a second SD card come, that came out of the camera. And then those files will be backed up. So there is a 0% chance that there will be some sort of an error. If a card becomes corrupted and the data is unrecoverable, we only lose one photo shoot. If we had one card in there and then we didn't do backups and we took three or four sh photo shoots and then lost the card, uh, that would be a nightmare. But we've never had to deal with that situation. I've never personally had a card fail on me yet. And I'm going to keep that chance of that happening as close to zero as possible. So I get a little fanatical when it comes to memory, but that's how we do it. Always, always we have backup SD cards. Extra batteries. This is a big one. I have like three times more batteries than I think I'm going to need. Easily. Like if I have, so those uh, flash triggers and the young newer remote triggers, I have three times the number of batteries that I would need to run each of those things. I can swap batteries in each of those things three times before I run out of batteries. Same thing with the camera, same thing with the flashes. 
and that gets really expensive in batteries. But this is why. When you're out and you're working every single day and you're like plugging things into charge at night, sometimes those batteries can slip through the cracks. Sometimes a dead battery works its way back into like the fresh battery pool. Or sometimes you're so busy, you just don't remember. And as like a last ditch emergency, what I have had to do in the past is like, oh my God, I don't have enough battery to get through the rest of the day. I need to to do something about it. So I'll I'll like sneak some to some part of the house if the house has power and like start plugging battery chargers in. Everywhere I go, every single kit doesn't just have the gear, it also has all the like backup equipment. The batteries, extra batteries and the battery chargers. So just in case if we have to do that. I have had to do that in a couple situations. I'm really let's say attentive to these kinds of detail, but um not everybody is. Sometimes I'll pick up a kit and some of the batteries are dead. You know, that's that's a problem. If you don't have battery power, you can't do your job. Basically, I make it so like no matter what, no matter if it's incompetence, if it's just something slipped through the cracks. Actually, you know, I'd chalk all that up to incompetence. I mean, batteries are supposed to be charged before the beginning of the next shooting day, right? I know that even if there's one, even if there's two dead batteries sitting there waiting for me, I still at least have one and I can, you know, sneak around <laughs> or just outright. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not actually sneaky about like stealing of someone's power. I'll just ask them, hey, can I plug this in? And it's rare, but it's one of those situations where these batteries are not, you can't just go to a store and buy them usually. Maybe you've got a camera store locally, in which case, yes, you can. But uh, for the Godox flashes, like I'm not going to be able to stop at a CVS and pick up an extra Godox 8200 battery. That's not happening. So you have to have that level of preparation done in advance of actually showing up to the, sh to the photo shoot. These are all just layers of things that are going to help you do your job because they're going to prevent failures, right? Extra shutter release cable. What if the thing gets lost? It's a little tiny cable. If you're not really consistent about packing it away the exact same way every single time, no matter what, you might find that the cable fell out somewhere and you have no idea where it is. Uh, you want to have a backup and you want to know where it is. You want to have it handy. Backup camera. This is less common. Not every single kit has a backup camera, but most of them do. We have a second camera. There are some times where I'll get a call and someone's like, oh my God, I'm behind schedule. I don't know what to do. If I'm out on the road or I'm doing something, I can just run there, grab the second camera and start taking some photos to help out. That is really important to have, especially if, God forbid, the camera fails you. I mean, that happens. It's, it's rare. I mean, a camera in good repair is not generally going to just fall apart for no reason. I mean, sometimes they do, though. And that's one of those like once in a lifetime situations like do you want to have to run out to Best Buy and buy some cheap camera you're not really familiar with and try and continue the shoot or do you want to just say, well, that's not working and pull up the next camera and continue on without a pause. Now, if you do that in front of another client during the, a photo shoot, they're going to think that you are a superhero because you're going to say, oh, look, a catastrophic equipment failure. Yeah. And then, and then just continue on. 
not many people will go to that level of preparation. Now, if you are just starting out, if you're newer or maybe this is like a side hobby for you and you're not really taking it super serious, it's okay if you don't have a complete backup of everything right away because like I said, it's kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime thing that that you'll have like these ridiculous failures and, and the only way that you can deal with it is to have a full backup kit or perhaps that's never going to happen to you. The more photo shoots that you're actually doing exposes you to more opportunities for failure. And the risk of being exposed to a potential equipment failure is an opportunity for you to be prepared for it. So if you know you're going to be out doing a lot of photo shoots, or at least you're planning on it, it's good to start building out some backups. You don't have to buy all this stuff right away as well. You can get the cheap budget stuff. It might be, you know, it might be a little difficult or clunky to use. It might be a big pain in the butt. It might be slow. But over time, as you make money, use your income from your photography business to upgrade and expand your kit. Those backups are just going to save your life. Like even just backup memory cards. What if you get a little complacent about stowing your gear away properly? Like at the end of each photo shoot, once we're done uploading, backing up data from cards, we pack the cards back away into the case with that camera kit. (laughs) What if you're not paying attention? You left your whole card holder out on your desk. And then you take your gear out for the day. <laughs> uh, that's happened. I've gotten a call from I've gotten a call from one of my photographers. He just drove an hour away to a photo shoot from the office. He picked the gear up and he left. And then he calls me and says, "Oh, um, are the memory cards there?" And sure enough, I look right around the corner. There they are. The ki- the memory card holder is open. All of his cards are still inside of it. <laughs> So um, luckily, we have in like a little plastic baggie a couple cheap memory cards just kicking around, and he was able to use those and, and complete the photo shoots and, you know, without a hitch. That level of preparation is so important. We're humans. We're imperfect. We might have things going on in our life that's like in the back of our mind distracting us. We might have been out late the night before or had a had a, a difficult night's sleep or no sleep at all. We might just have such a busy day, things are hectic and maybe we're nervous and overwhelmed. You don't want to allow human error to potentially lose business or lose money for you. Imagine if you went through a photo shoot and you lost your data or you couldn't even do the photo shoot because of some weird equipment failure that you weren't prepared for. That client is going to think twice before calling you back. Because your ability to be prepared for your job is your responsibility, not your client's. If someone thinks about you as a photographer and they're going to think, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes they do a great job, but uh, sometimes not. (laughs) Sometimes they're reliable. But, you know, there was that one time that, yeah, they said it would never happen again, but it happened. And that's going to be a thought in their mind forever from now on. They're going to be thinking about that when people ask, hey, do you know a good photographer? They're going to be thinking about that when they're getting ready to list a new property. When someone thinks of you, do you want them to think, wow, that photographer, they are always on time. They're always prepared. No matter what happens, the work gets done. The work is consistent. I know I can rely on these people. Or do you want them to think, oh, yeah, you know, they do pretty good. But uh, if something goes wrong, you know, then good luck. 
good luck even if I'm going to get my photos or it's it's just a easily avoidable situation and you're going to help your clients have a lot more confidence in your services and when you're doing photography on a professional basis you're charging a lot of money and part of that money is because they're paying for professional service which means you are going to be prepared to do your job now like i said just this stills kit if you were to go and buy everything used in you know okay shape and you really hustle to find a deal, only buy things at the cheapest times of the year for that thing, it's gonna be thousands of dollars. Of course it is. It's not going to be cheap. Even though I recommend the cheapo gear, like when it's all said and done, my photographer's driving away with like $10,000 or more worth of gear, worth of budget gear. That's not a That's not a small amount of money. Even though you could easily spend a lot more, <laughs> you could go out with twenty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear. I'm, I'm not saying that you know we're spending the most money that anybody could ever spend, but that's not a small amount of cash in gear. So if you are in a position where that's too much money, there's no way I could get all that stuff at once. Don't work with what you have, make the best of what you've got, and as you're making money, these are things you can keep in mind as additions you know maybe you're not going to buy a backup camera right away but maybe you would want to get a couple extra batteries you know maybe you would want to get an extra sd card better sd card holder those little things are really going to pay off they're cheap very cheap and they help you have a little bit more security knowing that your gear is being well maintained and protected that you are going to have some backups just in case it's going to give you that peace of mind. It's going to help you work a little bit more efficiently because in those situations where, oh, crap, I forgot to charge my battery, you're, you're, you're good. Or you drove away and your battery is still on the charger plugged into the wall. That's another thing that people will do. Okay, I'm at the office. At the end of the day, I'm tired, charging, plugging all my batteries. Go home. And maybe they're going to stay up and binge watch a show or go out drinking with friends. When they come into the office the next morning, they're not 100% there. Grab the box and leave. And then the flipping batteries are still plugged in charging on the wall. Or you know now they're 100%. Um, but to drive away and be like, oh, crap, my batteries. Like, I can't even do anything without that. But they know that there's also a bunch of extra batteries already fully charged that they haven't even used yet. I'm not saying that that's going to be you. But if you're ever in a position where you're dealing with other photographers working for you or you're just trying to have a super consistent and reliable workflow, those kinds of backups are going to come in handy. What do people like to say in business? You want to plan for failure. You, you mean you don't want to expect to fail, but you want to have a plan in place. You want to be prepared so you can do the job. Now, that is the kit for the photo shoot and that's a lot of stuff right camera lens memory tripod and tripod head the trigger and the cable go with it the flash and the flash trigger the light stand to go with the flash maybe a light modifier sometimes you know it's a that's a that's a decent sized kit i mean when it's all said and done it packs up in this nice and tidy little box i have the i have an, an array of pelican cases i find that the pelican 1510 is plenty big enough when you get the trek pack and the and the lid organizer if you really want to maximize your preparedness it's also helpful to have 
a cleaning kit, like a brush, the little air blowy thing. Um, you know, it's like a rubber ball with a, with a nozzle so you can blow dust off of um, your gear. It's helpful to have a, a lens cleaning cloth and a solution just in case. I find that, you know, maybe if it's raining and you get some water drops on the lens, you'll need to use the cloth, but I'm not using those things every day if I don't need to. Now, if you're one of those people, you have to use prime lenses for everything and you have to do lens changes. You might find as you're doing lens changes often that little specks of dust are ending up on that sensor. So you will want to have, you know, the, the little air blower thing. God, what is the name of that? That stupid little thing. That, but whatever, whatever it is, the little air blower, the, the little camera bellows. Well, that's what that's what we'll call it from now on. The the ca- camera bellows. You know, like at a blacksmith shop. The the the. Any, anyway, so uh, you you'll want to to quickly uh, blow the sensor dust off of, of the sensor. That's a great tool to use. If you are doing a lot of lens changes while you're out and about, you will also want to have a lens cleaning kit and maybe like one of those. Um, magnifying glass things you can set over the sensor of your camera to check it because having to send your camera in to have the sensor cleaned all the time because you can send those into uh, like a shop and they'll do it for you that's just an expense that you don't need to mess with so yeah if you insist on lens changes in um, potentially dusty environments just know that you know you might have to knock some lens off the sensor every now and then if the sensor is clean and then you leave the lens locked in at all times and for no reason are you or any of your photographers going to be taking the lens off, then most likely dust is not going to somehow magically find its way onto the camera. Honestly, I'm not too crazy about like going in and brushing little specks of dust off of the like outside of the gear because everything that we're using is um, usually weather sealed, like the case that all the stuff is in. So when we're taking it out of the box, everything's already clean. And if we notice that things are getting dirty, obviously we're going to keep them clean and shiny. When you're properly storing and caring for your gear during the day-to-day, having a cleaning kit on hand is not super critical, except, like I said, maybe wiping moisture off the front element of the lens. It can also be handy sometimes to have like a multi-tool on you just in case if you need to use some tools. Um, Honestly, you, you want to be prepared to the point where you don't need to be in a situation where you're going to have to have a tool to like unscrew a screw or to use the pliers to, to bend or pry something. All the gear that you want to be going out with should be in good repair and uh, should already have been tightened up. Like you check your gear at the office, maybe on a monthly basis, maybe on a yearly basis. You just check like, oh, how's the tension in my tripod legs? things like that it's usually not something you have to do out on location but if you wanted to throw it in the kit that can be handy like a lot of my kids not every single one of them but most of them have a cleaning kit with a multi-tool and you know just because it's convenient to have it right there in the case with the gear but very rarely do we pull that out usually we're just using it at the office okay video now if you're shooting video real estate video what do you need well you've already got all this other stuff And if you wanted to add video to your service, if you're using the GH4, you can use the GH4 for video. It's a very good video camera. The GH4 can film in 4K. If you wanted to film slow-mo, you can down-res to uh, 1080p. I find it does a great job. I'm often filming in 1080 at the uh, 60 frame per second um, speed. And on the GH4, you set up, it's called the variable frame rate VFR setting, and you can turn it on and you can set it to 60 frames per second. 
with the VFR on the GH4, what it's doing is it's recording the 60 frame per second video, the slow-mo, and it's writing into the SD card a 24 frame per second file. So when you play it back, what is it, 40% of, of real time, it's in that slow motion effect. So, you know, it actually saves you some time transcoding video files afterwards if you're doing the editing. Uh, but it's not a big deal to use media encoder and create, you know, if you're filming in 4K, 60, depending on your camera. Like on the drone, we always do 4K, 60. You can just transcode proxies and reinterpret within media encoder to 24 frames per second. And then in the timeline, reinterpret to 24 frames per second. And there's a way to edit and then export it like that. And, and, it, and it looks fine. But you got to jump through a couple little hoops. With the GH4, it just records to the 24 frame per second file. So you just drop it into your timeline and you're good to go. Stabilizers. So you've already got a tripod with the uh, geared tripod head. The problem with video and the geared tripod head is that it is not what we call a fluid head. If you know about video, I don't need to tell you about this. If you don't, just bear in mind that um, the fluid tripod head are big, clunky, expensive tripod heads for a reason. It enables you to create fluid pans and tilts with your camera. Um, you can make a decent real estate video with just a fluid head and a tripod and a slider. Usually I'm hand holding everything and I'm using a stabilizer. I'm almost never using a tripod unless for a specific case like I have to, like maybe the agent wants to do a talking head introduction. Oh, and by the way, when someone orders a real estate video and then on location, they're like, oh yeah, can you have me talking in it too? I'll say, yeah, sure, but those are um, those are all added paid items on the invoice. Uh, I used to fall for that all the time. The agent would be like, oh, can can we can can I have some like introduce the property? Can I be in the video too? And I used to be like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. But uh, that tacks on a lot more editing time and filming time because very few real estate agents are gonna get the uh, shot that they want done in one take, right? Oh, by the way, if you want talking heads, get a lav mic and get a decent shotgun on the camera. We're not really going to get too far into audio here when we're talking about doing video. But for the love of God, do not record someone's voice with just the in-camera microphone. It's absolutely awful. And don't think that you're going to get away with just a shotgun mic on the camera and it's going to sound perfect and beautiful. It's going to sound like someone's talking outside. You're going to hear all the bird sounds and everything. Like, Get a, a shotgun mic on the camera. That's It's good to have. It's handy as backup audio if you need it. And then get a decent lavalier microphone for the subject. If you're going to be doing video with people, just bite that bullet. It will pay dividends in the future, especially if you're going to bill real estate agent intro and real estate agent outro as separate line items on the invoice. For uh, moving through the interiors, filming you know, in slow-mo, and I've got my camera on a stabilizer. So when you're looking at stabilizers for video, how do you choose? There's the fancy electronic ones, DJI, Zion, Movi, make some really nice stabilizers. And then you can also get the standard glide cam type of uh, gimbal. So if you find that you're doing just a ton of video, and that's going to be, or it currently is a major part of your income as a real estate photographer go ahead and get the the more expensive the big fancy ones just realize that you know that's one more big piece of gear you get to lug around plus batteries you you really only want to buy it if it's going to make your life easier 
and your workflow a little bit better. Because basically with no practice at all, you can pick it up and, you know, perfectly stabilizes, almost perfectly stabilizes your camera. The option that I went with, of course, the budget option. So you can get the uh, Glide Cam for like a couple hundred bucks. You can get it like a Glide Cam HD 2000. I went with the even more budget budget option and I bought like a cheap Glide Cam knockoff for $60. And I pretty much do all my videos on that thing. I, I paid that piece of junk off in quadruplicate off of the first shoot that I did. So if you're going out and you're buying a $700, $1,000 piece of equipment, just think, like, how long is this really going to take me to at least break even on? And then how long is it going to take me to start actually profiting from the work that I'm billing while I'm using this thing? And then is it even worth it? For me, I, in my business, I said no. I'm not primarily a videographer. It's not my day-to-day -day thing. So it was not a big deal for me to get the glide cam knockoff and to practice with it, try and get pretty good with it, and then just to use that because, you know, there's no batteries, virtually no maintenance. It's pretty easy to, uh, to, to balance it out and to use once you get a really good feel for it. And, uh, you know, it does the job. Does the job just fine. Instantly after buying it and using it once, I paid it off and I got some nice profit. If you're going to spend, you know, hundreds, thousands on stabilizing equipment, just make sure that it makes sense for your business and that it's worth it. Don't convince yourself that the gear is going to help you make a lot of money. It's you. You're the person that's going to find the clients. You're the person that's going to do the work. The gear is just a tool to help you do that. If your tool is going to put you in debt and you're barely even going to use it, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So for me, yeah, I just do the cheap knockoff thing. If I ever wanted to upgrade something, I'll just upgrade to, the, to an actual real glide cam. You know, more durable, better handling. And um, I just don't see a need in my business right now for an actual real camera stabilizer. Now, if I'm at a point in my business where I don't feel like I could do as good a quality of a job that I would really want to do without it, then yeah, sure, I'll pay for one and start using it. But until then, I have to ask myself, is it worth the extra $650 just to have this thing to use? Or would I want to pay myself the $650 to do just as good a job or maybe almost just as good a job to use this, this other thing? Usually, I just opt to pay myself, uh, maybe even spend that money on some training, which would pay off way better in the long run than getting a piece of equipment and that's video. I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge with video is obviously getting smooth looking footage and camera settings. When you're taking your video, manually set ISO, manually set focus, especially on the GH4. GH4 autofocus sucks. Just manual. I mean, when you're actually shooting in VFR on the GH4, you have to have manual only focus. So that's fine. Um, and because it's micro four thirds, pretty much everything is already in focus anyway. If you're using a manual lens, it might have infinity focus on it. Um, if not, you know, focusing something within like three or four feet away from the camera lens, just locking it in, into manual focus mode and then having an f-stop of like f3, f4, maybe. Uh, that's just, it's basically everything's going to be tack sharp. Um, you're also going to want to make sure that your shutter speed a lot of people like to say that your shutter speed should be twice the frame rate, meaning like physically the numbers. If your frame rate is 24 frames per second, you should be at 1 50th of a second for the shutter. 
sometimes for me going a little bit slower helps me get a little bit more motion blur and it makes the movement and the motion look a little bit more fluid. When I'm filming video, it's all movement, you know, forward moving shots, parallax kind of shots. Sometimes I'll crouch down and then I'll jump up real high like to do like a fake jib shot. Yeah, I try to incorporate a lot of motion in pretty much every single one of my shots, like physical camera motion, not just tilts and pans. Sometimes I'll work a tilt and pan into a, a, a moving shot as well, but yeah, that's it. The, the, the video is going to be, it's going to be a lot of practice. And for me, I'm not going to mess around with setting up all these big uh, video lights and doing anything like that. I'm not filming a, a TV show. So I'm usually just relying on interior light, ambient light. So, so you want to per shot, check and set your white balance. You can get a free light meter app, which is a great help. It's not perfect, but it's a really good help to get you there as far as white balance goes. And, uh, you know, you could spend some money on a, on a, on a light meter, but the, but the app really does the trick for me. Every single shot, I check the white balance. After a while, you'll you'll pretty much get a, a feel for like, okay, this room, oh boy, we get some some incandescent bulbs. We're gonna do it like twenty three hundred Kelvin, and then and then you know we're outside. Okay, we're at fifty six, and then you're in a room with like fluorescent lights. Like, okay, maybe we'll go a little bit higher. You can kind of eyeball it once you really understand what kind of uh, Kelvin value you're you should be at for the lighting environment that you're in. But uh, I, I, I'll still pull the, the app out. It takes a second and um, you are going to thank yourself later. Don't convince yourself that you're going to be able to fix everything in post. Like that whole, oh, I'll just fix it in post. That's stupid. That's just an excuse for you not knowing how to do your job on location. Oh my God, I flipping hate it when people say that. If you could just get it right in camera by just being a little bit more thoughtful and deliberate with what you're doing, why not get it right in camera? You know, if you don't have to, like that whole, we'll fix it in post thing, that's for problems that you can't fix immediately in camera, right? That shouldn't be an excuse for you not understanding white balance or exposure. God, sorry. Yeah. I, it that's, that's like a big pet peeve of mine because a lot of people really stand behind that, you know, but you get so much more latitude when everything's already done right or almost right almost perfect you know even if it's not quite perfect if it's real close and then you got to make some changes it's going to be so much easier on you especially with video some people probably don't care spending an extra five hours editing a video because they you know the white balance is wrong they have no idea how to fix the color there's some things you can easily fix and there's some things that you cannot but if you can just get it right in camera especially with video do that. So instead of focusing on gear and the next thing to buy, you want to focus on training and your knowledge personally. You want to get your video right in camera. Use manual settings. It's okay if it takes a little bit more time in between shots as long as once you're sitting in front of the computer editing them or sending them off to your editor that uh, everything is going to go off without a hitch. You don't want your let's say, naivete or incompetence to cause problems with the shoots. This is all about preparation, right? And then one of the last things, so if you ever wanted to do virtual tours, if you ever wanted to do uh, the 3D virtual tours, not like a video tour, not a slideshow, I'm talking about like the 3D dollhouse, 
where you can on on your computer screen click and, and walk around and look up down the right. I recommend uh, getting a Matterport camera. That's definitely not the cheap way to go. There's plenty of other 3D virtual tour companies um, that will give you a version of like an interactive floor plan or something more on the lines of like what you might see in Google Street View. For the, the quality that I want to deliver, for the user experience that I want to deliver, I find that Matterport is the best, even though it is not the cheapest by far. Even with like the 12-month paid-in-advance professional membership, it's still a couple grand. And then you've got still your monthly account fees for you know any kind of 3D scans over a certain number. And then you've still got to pay if you wanted to process floor plans which through them, which if you're doing Matterport, I recommend, and billing them as normal floor plans. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is not cheap, <laughs> but it's good because it's good when you can save a ton of money on one side of the business and then it's not that big a deal if you have to spend it on the other side because I can deliver really high quality and interesting products for super, super competitive prices and people just love it. And, uh, you know, the, so the Matterport camera, I recommend, uh, if you are like me and you like to have a consistent mounting system, you just screw a mount Manfrotto quick release plate on the bottom of that bad boy and then you can just put it on your tripod. You will want a case for the Matterport camera. So if you had, for example, a large enough Pelican case where you could make its own little compartment and fit it in, I think there are some Pelicans that are deep enough that you could either put it in um, upright or, or maybe you'd have to lay it down flat, but that would take up a lot of um, area inside of your case so just be aware of that i have mine in, in its own dedicated case with its own dedicated tripod and its own dedicated ipad you do have to have an ipad uh, to use the matterport camera so matterport camera tripod ipad and a case plus of course the matterport account and all the fees associated with that uh, but if you wanted to create those 3d virtual tours uh, that's what i would use that's what i'm using that's what i'd recommend you can buy the Matterport cameras used. There's not really a big used market for them, though. Um, <laughs> and that's probably because I'm just snatching them all up as soon as they come onto eBay. Um, you will find that Matterport customer service doesn't necessarily fully support people who have bought used cameras. So... Um, like they're probably not going to honor the warranty or they're either going to be out of warranty or there was a case where the when the first Matterport series came out and then the Matterport Pro 2 version 2 came out um they had a trade-in program and because I had bought mine used they would not take it as a trade-in so that's another thing to consider but I mean overall still a great experience not cheap not the first thing that I'd buy but in time yeah it's it's worth it in my own business, unfortunately, that was the first thing that I bought. So as someone who did say, I'm going to start with virtual tours, I'd recommend starting and learning to do photography because with virtual tours, I found that I had to not just sell the service. I had to educate, I had to create a presentation where first I established that there is a need for this, that those clients that I was standing in front of needed it. And that if they didn't buy into this, that they'd be like left behind and then they'd miss all these opportunities. Like I had this whole sales presentation just, just to sell Matterport and it worked great. But if you're not an experienced public speaker, if you're not an experienced salesperson, 
you might not have that much success. I mean, I wouldn't say I had a ton of success with it. And I was hustling that thing day and night. If, if, you, if you're just starting out, focus on the photography side. That is much higher margin. Equipment is easier and, and, and cheaper, so it's more accessible. And then, you know, as you grow, you can add something like that on. And then extra stuff that you don't necessarily need, but sometimes it might be handy to have, like the second camera kit. I like to also be prepared for all different types of photo shoots. So if I know I'm just going to a photo shoot, I will also make sure I have my video stabilizer with me and my 3D scanning machine with me because every single interaction with a paying client is also an opportunity to potentially upsell them on some more services. Not to upsell them on stuff that they don't need, that they don't want, just to separate them from their money because that's not how you run a good business, but to be able to, you know, you're looking at this house and you could say, hey, I know you didn't want to do this, but this house is, you know, something special going on and it wouldn't cost you more than X if you wanted to add this service. I think you'd really like it. I think your clients, your sellers would really like it too. Would you be interested? Sometimes they'll say no, but sometimes they'll say yes. So for, you know, one visit, you can increase your invoice by, you know, hundreds and without necessarily having to work a whole lot harder because you're already there. Now, if you were to just bring out one kit for one thing and then all your video stuff and your Matterport camera and that's all sitting in the office at home because you didn't need it, but you show up and you could have had an opportunity to upsell them or sometimes the client will ask, oh, actually, now that I think of it, could we add this or that? You're probably going to say yes, but you're going to have to come out another time, right? You're going to have to reschedule a new appointment and come out, and then that's another block of time that you cannot give to someone else. Um, so it also helps save time and those la for those last-minute changes, and uh, that's going to help make you a little bit more money, right? Laptop. So uh, computing technology is real cheap these days, but what is not cheap is realizing that your photos have some problems with them and you need to go back and do a reshoot. So something I like to do is um, quickly back up files while I'm on the road in between appointments. I have my photographers do the same. So, you know, we just have it like a cheap laptop in one of the cases that goes out uh, with everybody. Um, I don't, I can't quite explain it, but I seem to burn through Apple products at a mysterious rate. I just, and I'm not buying like new things either. I just find that a lot of students will like, their parents will buy them the top of the line, whatever. And a couple of years go by, they barely use it. And then, you know, they sell it for, for peanuts. So as a, daily or weekly habit if i ever find a couple minutes where i'm not doing anything i'm not really going to play games or just sit there twiddling my thumbs i like i like to check the um the used market jump on the facebook marketplace see what's around me you know you can set a radius within like five ten miles um same thing check out craigslist post check out ebay just to see if anything new is, is up for sale and you know the, the those cheap, cheap like cameras, Apple TVs. I don't know why people do this. They spend a whole bunch of money on this stuff. 
And then very little time goes by and they're like, ah, I just want to get rid of it. And they give it away practically. Every now and then I'll see something. I'll be like, well, that's a great deal. I'll just, I'll just buy it. A lot of people will, will, will buy like the small MacBook Air. And then, um, you know, a couple of years later, they'll, they'll say, oh, I'm selling my MacBook Air for a graduation present. I got a MacBook Pro. I don't need this anymore. And they'll sell it for like 500 bucks. Right. And it's like top of the line, a year old. So when I see that, I'm like sold. I'll go and I'll grab it and uh, and toss it into a kit. And it's just so nice to have equipment, reliable equipment, consistent between all of the different kits you might have running. And, you know, in your case, you might not need many of them. Maybe you just need one or two. But to have like a little cheap laptop in your camera bag, maybe even with Photoshop and Lightroom loaded up on it, but at least to quickly review photos. If you have downtime, if you have like an hour in between shoots, um, or if you're on a really demanding photo shoot and you want to make sure everything is perfect, the screen on your camera is not going to do the trick. And if you're using the GH4 like I am, you can't use Cam Ranger if you're using Canon or Nikon. Um, and I think they're expanding to Sony soon if they haven't already. Um, you could use a Cam Ranger and have a a larger um, display. But for me, I have to put them on the computer. Yeah, it's kind of clunky. It takes a little bit extra time, but I'm not complaining. And uh, it's just so great to be able to work on the road and not find those situations where, because we're taking booking fees, still every now and then someone will cancel last minute. So, okay, I've got a booking fee, but now I have all this open time in my calendar and I'm way away from the office. What the hell do I do? Well, I can pull out one of the laptops, I can review photos, I can respond to email, check messages and things like that. Uh, it's just helpful on a productivity level in your business to be able to work remotely. I do have a desktop in my office that I do most of my work on, but you know, to be able to have something more than just your phone. <laughs> I mean, you can do a lot on your phone, really. Um, but it's 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 good to have a, a computer where you can review images, make sure files are being backed up, maybe even stop somewhere with internet, upload photos to the cloud if you have uh, you know some server space and if you have an editor, or even start editing on your own, even if your computer is not quite as strong as uh, your desktop is in the office. Let's say you can get if it's a fast enough hard drive. And let's talk about hard drives. The backup hard drives that we're using, I'm using the Lacey Rugged hard drives. Um, and, I, I, and I have the USB-C version. So if you have a fast enough hard drive, you can save your Lightroom catalog and your Photoshop files, everything, all your raw files in a single location sorted under the real estate brokerage brand name under the office or city location under the agent's name, and then finally the property address, and then raw files, video files, Lightroom catalog, whatever. You can have this kind of cascading um, organizational system so everything is super consistent everywhere you go. And when you are done working on your laptop, you can unplug the hard drive after obviously properly ejecting it and uh, plug it into the main computer and then transfer files or continue on editing, lag-free, uh, which is great. If, if you cheap out on your memory, if you get a really cheap garbage hard drive, uh, you might not have the greatest experience trying to edit 
on the fly, but um, something that I do, something that I do not too often nowadays because I'm not, like I said, editing every single photo. But to have the ability, it's really handy, especially in those unexpected moments because it does happen when you have a cancellation for whatever reason, when you just happen to have some downtime in between appointments if you're trying to be a full-time real estate photographer, or let's say if you did a couple photo shoots before or after work. You know, it's, it's good to have that mobile office capability to get things done and maximize your productivity. So when you go home, you're not just miserable and hating your life because you know you're not going to get to sleep until 2 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> you know, like I said, that's a down-the-road thing. Uh, you can get by with just the regular camera gear for your photo shoot. And if you hate to edit your photos or if you really want to maximize your shooting time, you don't want to be an editor, you want to be a photographer, which, and not to get anyone mad, I understand that being a photographer also means being an editor, and a lot of us want to maintain some control over the entire thing and edit our photos personally, nothing wrong with that. I like to leverage my time as much as I can, so I um, take on editors personally one-on-one, train them on my way of doing things exactly, all the different little tricks that I like to do, and you know, and then I, I just feed them photos. So that is the episode. I hope that this has been informative for everyone. I went through all of the essentials for these different types of appointments, right? Your standard photo shoot, your video shoot, and your 3D scan virtual tour creation. You might find that for the way that you shoot or for the equipment that you like, you, you might say, yeah, you know, this is great information, but stop talking about the GH4. Nobody uses it anymore. It's an old piece of junk. It sucks. Look, I get it. <laughs> okay. It wasn't the best camera money could buy the, even the year that it was brand new, right? Um, if you use a different camera, that's okay. All the other things still apply here. If you like to use more expensive, higher-end, newer gear, that's okay as well. I just want you to think about ways that you can spend the least amount of money that will help you make the most amount of money. Not to necessarily cheap out and then have unreliable, inefficient gear because that's going in the wrong direction. If you need something in order to work faster or work better, then that's it. You need it. And if that means spending some money, you've, you've got to do it. When it comes to like the bare necessities of doing a photo shoot, you don't really need the best. You don't need anything even remotely close to the best that money could buy. You need something that is good enough. And there's a <laughs> and the difference between good enough and the best is they're miles apart, right? So you could potentially get anything in, in between. So if you have a different camera lens combination, that's fine. As long as you're getting good exposures, as long as you're getting good resolution and good compositions, that you're you're good to go. Maybe you want to use a different brand of, of flash. Maybe you want to use something a little bit more powerful. That's fine. I wouldn't recommend anything less powerful than the 8200 when it comes to flash power. You might want different kinds of memory cards, different kinds of tripods. I understand that. And if you personally like different things, you can make those things work. I want you to know this is what 
I am using on a daily basis. This is what my photographers are using on a daily basis. And we are taking photos of real estate listings all over the state that we're in. We're in Massachusetts, in New Hampshire, in Rhode Island, and Connecticut. And people are giving us great feedback. So you don't necessarily need to have top of the line, most expensive everything. And this is an important point that I always want to drive home. Don't forget this. You want to start profiting as much and as soon as possible because businesses fail when you don't sell enough of your product in a short enough span of time. A business needs profits in order to survive. If it costs you $1,000 to make $1,000, you just wasted your time. You could have put that money in the bank and gotten you know, 0.02% interest, and that would have been more profitable for you, right? If you spend $1,000 to make $1,500, well, that's okay. I'd say that's more like a hobby, right? That's not at the level, unless you have a high enough volume, unless you can do that kind of a transaction, a 1.5 return, within a short enough span of time, like a higher volume, then you know we're talking about paying bills, covering payroll, feeding yourself and your family. A lot of us, a lot of photographers especially, because you have a lot of people that just have a passion for photography. They get into it because they just love it. And that's great. That's really important. You should love what you do. But if you're in this position where you're like, well, I just really like the opportunity. I want to be able to do this work. And you know, I guess it's okay if I don't really make anything on this. I have another job or whatever. (laughs) No, that's the wrong answer. You're still doing the work. You're still delivering the same level of value if you're providing professional quality photos. And the client, the listing agent is going to sell that house and make thousands of dollars, a lot more than you probably would off of a real estate shoot. So, you know, that kind of a value exchange is only right and fair for you because you are doing the work. I mean, we're not even talking about copyrights either. Did you know the copyrights are written into the Constitution that creators should have like, what do they say, a a limited monopoly over their work? You could also charge, you could maintain copyrights to your work because you're the author, you're the one taking the photos, and you could even charge licensing fees. You see that more in commercial photography. A lot of people that don't have business experience, they get I don't know, they, they feel uncomfortable when it comes to money. But when you're running a business, it is all about the money, really. Because if you have no money, it means you cannot get newer or upgrade or f- repair equipment. You're not paying your bills and you have bills. I mean, if you're living in your parents' basement and you know they bought you a camera and they bought you everything that you've got and, and they don't care if you do anything with it and you don't care if you make any money, like I'm... You know, that's going to be a different situation. But if you're trying to become a full-time real estate photographer, you're trying to build a photography business, it needs to be profitable. One of the ways you can help your business become profitable is by working with gear that is, you know, you can get it at really good prices, used in good shape, obviously. You want to make sure things are in good working order. And that's going to help you make more money sooner. It's going to help your business last longer. It's going to make you much happier. If you want to be in the situation where you're like, oh, I'm sick of these cheap, crappy cameras and lenses and all this garbage. I, don't, I, don't, I want something nice and fancy. Well, how about you do that when you have you know, $50,000, $95,000 sitting in your business checking account? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, 
if you can work within certain limitations that will help you not just run a better business, but to save money. And then when you get so much cash sitting in the checking account, you're not sure what you're going to do with it. I mean, I would say you should probably like travel and enjoy your life. But if the way that you want to enjoy your life is by spending all your money on gear, how about you, you start spending money after you've made some money, right? Make money and then you spend it. That's how that cycle works. Not the other way around. <laughs> you're going to have a really difficult time if you're doing it backwards, if you think that you have to spend all this money and equipment and and then I'm going to make some profits. I mean, maybe you will. Maybe you can stick it out and, you know, do the labor and, and just deal with it and then eventually come out on top. But not everybody can do that. You want to have what we call holding power. <laughs> Even if business slows down, if something breaks, if something crazy happens, you want to have cash in the bank not have all this equipment that now you're going to have to liquidate because you don't know what else to do. This is a lesson not just in gear to bring, but in how you can do a great job with okay equipment, <laughs> with good equipment, with good enough. Not good enough because the standard is good enough. Eh, screw it, it's good enough. Who cares? We, we want to demand excellence and perfection out of ourselves and, and from the work that we do. But if we can do it, and save some money, and at the same time, make more money, that's going to benefit our business. And in the end, that's going to benefit us personally, but also our clients, because we're going to be able to stick around for a long time. We're going to be able to do this whole photography thing for many, many years to come. And they're not going to have to worry about calling your number one day, and then <laughs> the line's disconnected. Or, oh yeah, sorry, I can't do that. I had to get a job. Yeah, no, I know. I'm I'm a bartender now. <laughs> I'm I'm cleaning offices at night, so I'm I you know I can't take morning appointments. I need to sleep. You don't want to be in that situation where you have to take other jobs just to support your passion project or your business. Your business should be supporting you and your life, and that's going to keep you in business. It's going to keep everyone much happier. So I hope this has been really informative for everyone. I know that this is a little bit longer than we normally go on. Wow, I must have been wasting some time on this recording. My, uh, my recorder is starting to hit two hours. Probably going to edit this down considerably. But I just want everybody to know I took two hours out of my Sunday morning so I could share this information with you all. I knew this was going to be a little bit longer. So I made sure to pick out like a more open time in the calendar for it. And I'm always happy to share. And especially when it comes to helping other photographers in business, as I'm sure you have realized by now. But if you've listened to this and you still have some questions... Or if you have something unrelated to equipment for the photo shoot, you can reach out to me directly. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at Tom Vargeletis, T-O-M-V-A-R-G-E-L-E-T-I-S. You can email me as well. You can send a message to Tom at FTREphoto.com. Always happy to get some feedback on the podcast. <laughs> How does my beautiful voice sounding to you? Anybody who is interested, I do offer personalized coaching for your photography business. If you are just starting out or if you want to bring your business to that next level, you can definitely reach out and talk to me about that. I try to give out as much as I can for free. I've even referred you to some free resources like YouTube or some other books you could find online in previous episodes. 
for that personal touch and for that one-on-one interaction. Please don't hesitate. You can reach out and ask. And uh, without further ado, that was the Full-Time Real Estate Photography Podcast. What gear to bring to a photo shoot.